Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Do you have butterflies on your mind? Do you need help setting up a dado plane? Do you have trouble chopping your mortises square to the edge of the stock? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 31 of the show for July 25th, 2018. Before I start today's show, just want to take a minute to thank all of our patrons for your continued support of the show. Your continued support helps to keep things going here, so I greatly appreciate it. And if you'd like to support the show yourself, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. So I actually got some time in the shop, a couple hours the last uh, few days. So I started uh, making preparations to do a couple of new videos for YouTube. Uh, very unlikely that they'll be out in this month, though. So probably look for those sometime in, uh, in August if you're uh, interested in that kind of thing. So I do have some feedback this week. The first one comes from Don. And he says, I listened to your podcast a couple weeks ago about tips on sawing straight. To say it changed my life would be a slight exaggeration, but it certainly changed how well I can saw a straight line with my handsaw. Not quite sure how it works, but lining up my eye with the saw blade was what I was not doing. I'm closing my left eye a lot of the time, but hopefully with enough practice I can stop doing that. Listen to several of your podcasts now and enjoyed all of them. Thank you very much. Uh, so thank you, Don, for that feedback. And, um, you know, it... It works for some people and it, it doesn't work for others. You know, some, there are folks who will say it's, it's wrong to saw that way and that, you know, uh, a handsaw is not a rifle and, and you shouldn't sight down it like that. But, you know, it, it worked for me years ago when I, uh, I discovered the method and, uh, I know it's worked for a lot of other folks too. So I'm glad it has helped you straighten out your sawing. Also got some feedback from Jonathan. He says, I was listening to episode 30, and I think there was some terminology mix-up. The Miller's Falls bench planes don't have a two-part chip breaker, but a two-piece lever cap. The idea was to have three points of contact on the double iron, keeping them more secure to each other and also to the frog. So thank you for that, Jonathan. Uh, you know, as I, I mentioned in the last episode, I've never actually used a Miller's Falls plane, so, um, but I have used the Clifton slash record two uh, irons with the two-piece chip breaker. So I wrongly assumed that, um, I think it was Hugo, uh, who was asking about the Miller's Falls two-piece lever cap. Um, yeah, two-piece lever cap. Um, I, so I gave some misinformation there. I, I apologize. I apologize for that. But, you know, like I said, I never used the Miller's Falls, so I, I didn't realize they had a two-piece lever cap. Um, so that is definitely different from a two-piece cap iron or chip breaker. Uh, those terms are often used interchangeably. Um, so, yeah, thanks for that, Jonathan. So, uh, you know, we all learned something new today. So thanks for that. So let's get into our listener questions. First one comes from Sean Bibler. 
Sean says, I'm away on deployment and thinking and planning on building my shop within a freestanding building. The bench you built looks like a no-nonsense workhorse, but I've always wondered about the shoulder vice a la Frank Klaus. Could you put my mind to rest? I'm constantly wrestling over the two benches, yours and, and Mr. Klaus's. Also, considering consider the rule, no builds with plywood as a mindset within this shop. Okay, Sean. Well, first, let me thank you for your service. Um, and second, uh, I, I hope I'm not going to disappoint you, but um, that you really you can't go wrong with either bench. Um, and and the whole plywood thing really doesn't doesn't make a difference. You know, I I rarely use plywood in my shop. I do on occasion. Um, but the fact of the matter is, you know, the bench works just fine whether you use plywood or not. Um, the shoulder vise is nice because it allows you to clamp a piece uh, and dovetail straight through. You know, if you're doing dovetailing, it allows you to clamp a piece in that vise without anything getting in the way. Um, so you can clamp really long pieces in a shoulder vise. I can do the same thing, though, most of the time with my double screw, with the twin screw vise. Um, I can clamp stuff as tall as my bench or taller in that twin screw vise. And, and I really like the twin screw vise for that. So um, in that regard, I think the uh, the twin screw actually works out really nice, um, you know, because you, you kind of get the best of both worlds. You don't have that um, that big piece, the big shoulder sticking out to get in the way while you're planing or doing other things. Um, but you can also pass things through uh, completely, you know, un, un, uh, yeah, I don't even know what the word I'm looking for is, uh, you know, without any interference from any screws or guide bars or anything like that. So I think the twin screw is, is great for that reason. So, but I don't think you could go wrong building either bench. They both work fine. It really comes down to, you know, visually and aesthetically, what do you like more? Go ahead and build that because in the long run, that's probably what you're going to be happier with. So our second question comes from Hugo and Hugo wants to know, could you talk about butterfly joints? Uh, what, what kind of wood, how deep is the mortise and what are the angles of the wings? So butterfly keys are kind of interesting. Um, you know, I think they're really more decorative than functional in most cases. Um, do they provide some support in a slab that's got a split in it? Yeah, maybe, but if you've got a slab that's, you know, two inches thick and you are going to inlay, you know, this little quarter inch to half inch thick butterfly key, um, I'm not sure that that key is really going to provide all that much support to keep that slab from, from splitting if it wants, if that split wants to continue. So I think in a lot of cases, the butterfly keys are more decorative than anything, but you know, along those lines, they do look really cool. So, you know, why not go ahead and put them in? And I'm sure, you know, and they do provide some level of support, of course, because um, they're intention, obviously, and uh, it is difficult to break wood in that direction along its length, you know, pulling it in tension. Um, but you know, I would imagine that if that slab really wanted to, that split really wanted to continue, you've got a lot of short grain on the edges of those butterfly keys based on the way that they're designed. So 
Um, you know, I think it could still break those if it really wanted to. If it, if, it, if a two-inch slab wanted to continue to split that bad, I don't think you're going to stop it with butterfly keys. In terms of what kind of wood to use, um, you know, you could use whatever you want, really. As I said, most of the times they're used sort of as a decorative element. So you're looking for some kind of contrast. You know, if you've got a walnut slab, you might want to make your keys out of maple or cherry or something along those lines. Usually they're hardwood because hardwood's going to be a little bit more rigid and a little stiffer. Um, but you can really use any kind of wood that you want, ultimately. How deep is the mortise? Uh, you know, I think I mentioned before, um, they're usually not too deep, you know, somewhere between, you know, the, for a, on a small table, like a, an end table or something like that, they may only be a quarter to three eighths of an inch deep. On a larger table, you know, like a big slab dining table or something like that, they might be a little bit deeper, maybe, you know, maybe a half inch deep, uh, three quarters, something like that. But usually they're not much deeper than, than a half half inch to three quarters um, uh, because it's, you know, it's just not necessary. Again, it's more of a decorative thing than anything else. So most people don't make them much deeper than a half inch to three quarters of an inch deep. As for the angles of the wings, uh, you know, there's really no right answer to this. In fact, in my opinion, the only right answer is make them any angle that you want. Um, just like cutting dovetails, it really doesn't matter. It really comes down to how it looks to you and what looks good. Um, obviously, you want to make sure you've got enough meat in the middle to help support, um, you know, so that you're not ending up with a triangle and not a butterfly. Uh, but other than that, you know, I think you can make a, the uh, the wings any angle you want, whatever looks good to you. So our next question comes from Brian Steinberg. Brian says, I'm curious to hear you discuss setting up a dado plane. I have previously cut dados by sawing the lines and chiseling out the waist. This has worked fine, however, it takes forever, especially on wide case sides. Since your recent discussions on dado planes, I decided to uncover an old 5 8 inch dado plane I bought at an antique store a while back. I cleaned it up, flattened the soles, sharpened the knickers and iron, and put it to use. I'd say it's 80% towards being perfect. It seems aligning the blade and knickers can be finicking. I also noticed the body has a very subtle bow with the concave side on the side that rides along the fence. Should I try to remove this bow? Will I need to adjust the width of my iron and knicker slightly? And this may be an obvious question, but shouldn't the side of the plane that rides against the fence be dead flat and square with the sole? All right, dado planes. One of my, they're actually one of my favorite tools to use. Uh, very underrated you know the, the the sawing and chiseling and router plane thing will work for making dados but as you found out for yourself it is kind of a slow process compared to using a dado plane um, so that the easiest thing to answer first is the uh, the sides the, the stock itself if the stock has any warp the body of the plane has any warp at all um, it is going to cause you some issues because you've got a uh, you know, you said you've got a five-eighth inch plane, so that means that the base of the plane should be five-eighths inch, five-eighths of an inch wide, or just a hair under. The iron is going to cut a five-eighth inch wide dado, so the iron is actually going to be wider than five-eighths of an inch because it's skewed. So that skew uh, makes a difference. Um, so the iron. Um, is going to cut a five eighth inch, well, a five about five eighth of an inch wide um, 
dado and the knickers are going to be the the scoring iron is going to be five eighths of an inch wide either the body's actually going to be or the section of the body where the iron protrudes is going to be a hair less than five eighths of an inch um, now if you imagine that your iron your body is bowed or warped um, if that body is bowed any significant amount it essentially makes the effective width of the sec of that section of the data plane wider than five eighths of an inch, and that's going to cause problems because the plane is going to want to bind in that dado as it as it gets deeper. Um, so yes, I would say that you do want to try to remove that bow. Um, if it's severe, there's not going to be a whole lot that you can do. The plane's probably trashed, but it doesn't sound that way in your case. It sounds like it's just very slightly warped. Um, so I would say, you know, to take the, um, take the iron out, both irons, take the, uh, the wedge out, shore up the plane, make sure it doesn't rock on your workbench and very, very, very lightly with a, a really lightly set, um, shoulder plane or rabbit plane or something to that nature, uh, go ahead and straighten out the body, straighten out the plane, um, and you really only have to straighten out the section that goes in the dado. Um, but if you want to make it look nicer, you could probably plane the whole thing. Um, but you do want to try and make that dead straight because it's really going to help the performance of the plane a lot. Um, so, yeah, do that first. Uh, but you're trying to take off the absolute minimum amount of wood that you can. The sole, as you mentioned, should also be square to the side of the dado plane. It doesn't have to be exact, but the closer you can get it, again, the better the plane is going to work for you. Once you have the body of the plane straight, the next thing I would work on would be the scoring iron. Um, I, I sharpen mine a little bit unconventionally. A lot of historical literature and, and folks who've, other folks who use these types of planes will tell you that you, know, you sharpen the scoring iron so that you... Um, you drag the plane backwards the first couple passes to score the sides of the dado. Um, I don't do that. I experimented a few years ago and discovered um, a way of setting up and sharpening a dado plane that worked much better for me than the whole drag the plane backwards thing. Um, and I, I need to do a video on this, and I know I've I've said it a few times, and uh, I'm going to try to do it, you know, sometime within the next couple of months, but. Um, so you're going you're gonna to set up the scoring iron next. And the first thing you're going to do is to make sure that the scoring iron is a hair wider than the dado, than the, the bottom section of the dado plane, the part that actually fits inside of the dado. And that's just so that the plane doesn't bind. But you don't want it a lot wider. Because if the scoring iron is a lot wider than the, the body of the dado plane, what you're going to find is that it's not going to create a dado exactly necessarily where you want it. You could end up with a little bit of drift or a little bit of wobble because you're trying to hold the body of the plane against the fence and the iron is a little bit wider and it's actually preventing that from happening. So um, you want that scoring iron to just be a hair wider. Now the scoring iron is not a hardened iron typically, so you can sharpen it and adjust it with nothing more than a file. So I would adjust it 
on the side away from the iron's tang. So the you know the, if you look at a, a scoring iron for dado plane, it usually looks kind of like a little flag. File the flag side down, um, the side away from the tang, because you don't want to make the tang any thinner. You just want to narrow the iron just a slight little bit. Then go ahead once you have the the, the iron just a hair wider than the width of the um, body of the plane itself when it's set in there. You can take it out and then you can uh, address the scoring spurs themselves. Now, as I mentioned, I am a little unconventional when I set up a dado plane. I like to file the spurs or the scoring spurs on my dado plane scoring iron at an angle instead of straight across like most dado planes come. And I file them at an angle so that the angle is um, it, it the the angle of the scoring spurs goes from the toe of the plane to the heel of the plane. So if you're looking at the plane um, at the side of the plane, if the toe of the plane is is to your left and the heel of the plane's to your right, and you're looking at the scoring iron, that scoring iron spur should slope from left to right. So the point of the scoring iron is actually going to be on the right-hand side. And what this does is it's actually filing that scoring spur as sort of like a marking, like a knife, like a, a, a spear pointed or, or a beveled marking knife. And what that does is it allows the spur to cut as the plane is being pushed instead of needing to drag it backwards to score the sides of that dado. And what I've found is that if I sharpen the those spurs, if I file them at an angle like that so they slope from the toe to the heel um, and sharpen them up like I would, you know, a marking knife or something like that with a, a file, and you can even stone them even though it's pretty soft steel, um, you know, file it and then you can you can stone it a little bit. Um, they make a really crisp shoulder line that way, and it allows the plane to just continue to be used with a pushing action instead of having to drag the plane backwards. Um, and the other thing it does, so you know, usually when you set up a dado plane so that it scores the sides when you drive it back, when you draw it backwards, um, it tends to, you know, you tend to draw it backwards for the first couple of strokes to get it get the dado started and then you kind of go to town making your dado and the whole drawing it backwards and scoring the sides thing sort of goes away you, you know as you, the dado progresses you kind of forget to do that and what ends up happening is as the dado gets deeper past the part where that scoring iron initially scored the shoulders um, you might get some tearing and some some fuzziness on the edges well by sharpening the scoring iron the way I just described, the scoring iron continues to cut as you're using the dado plane and it essentially leads the cut, which um, makes it easier for the, the following blade then to remove the chip because you're constantly scoring the sides. Um, and it also makes for cleaner shoulders when you're done. So um, that's my second step is to set up the scoring iron. After that, then I set up the main blade itself. And you want the main blade, again, to be just a hair narrower than the scoring iron. So what you need to do is set the blade in the plane and line everything up and sight down the sole and kind of look at the edge of the main blade 
be, and sort of line it up between the two outside um, edges of the scoring iron. And you want the main blade to be a hair narrower um, than that scoring iron when it's set in the plane. You can't just hold the iron up to the scoring iron to check this, again, because the main iron is skewed and the scoring iron is not. So you can't look at it that way. You actually have to put the iron in the plane and sight down the sole of the plane and make sure that when you sight down the sole of the plane, you don't see any part of the main iron sticking out past the edges of the scoring iron. You may have to grind or stone the side of the main cutting iron in order to make it a little narrower so that it is slightly narrower than the scoring iron itself. Once that iron is sized properly, then you can regrind the bevel and hone the bevel. And then when you set the dado plane up, you put the scoring iron in first, you put the main blade in second, and you want to sight down the sole of the plane so that you make sure when you sight down the main iron, the edge of the main iron is within the outer extremes of the scoring iron so that you can be sure you're not, your main iron's not trying to cut wider than what your scoring iron is, is doing. And I think that's going to help a lot. Um, again, I'll try to get a video of this in the next couple of months. Uh, I don't know how that's going to end up time-wise, but uh, hopefully from the description I just gave you, you'll be able to uh, make some adjustments uh, to your plane and, and get it working a little bit better for you. So our last question comes from Dave Chalice. Dave says, I found that I often struggle with making mortises dead square vertically through a piece of wood, especially on narrow mortises. I'm fine keeping the mortise accurate along the length of the mortise and within the marking lines, but notice that I often end up with a slightly angled mortise. I'm guessing from not keeping the chisel completely vertical. I'm not sure, I'm not, I'm not quite sure where I should be looking to keep things lined up when chopping a mortise and how to best keep the chisel at 90 degrees to the wood, both front to back and left to right. Perhaps the position I'm standing in is causing something to be off. In case it makes a difference, I also use normal chisels for mortising rather than dedicated mortising chisels, as I've read that mortise chisels were more of a luxury than a necessity, though I don't know how true this is or whether this might be contributing to the problem. Also, if I do end up chopping a slightly angled mortise, are there any suggested fixes? I fixed things the last time I did this by cutting the tenon at the opposite angle and another time by gluing small wood shims inside the tenon, though I'm not sure if there are better ways. Of course, I'd rather just work on fixing the cause in the first place. So, Dave, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen my videos on doing mortises, but I've done several of them. They're on, on YouTube. Um, there's one in the uh, Porringer Tea Table series. There's, there's probably one uh, when I'm making the... Um, raised panel door. I'm probably probably a video there on doing a mortise. And there's actually a um just a, a a video just on doing just on chopping a mortise that I I believe I did for uh, as like a popular woodworking extra uh, several years ago. And it's just dedic it's just a video just on chopping the mortise. One of the things that I show in those videos is that when I chop a mortise, I stand in line with the length of the piece. Because when you're chopping a mortise, staying within the lines isn't so difficult, right? You can see the lines. It's not that big of a deal. If you're standing on the side of the piece, right? So if you've, if you, let's say you're chopping a mortise in a door style, and you're standing in front of your bench, and the door style is running 
you know, parallel with the front of the bench, you're not going to be able to see whether or not you're holding that chisel plumb to the workpiece. So what I do is I position myself so that I'm standing along the end of the workbench so that I, so that I can, I'm standing essentially in line with the style of that door. That way I can sight plumb very well with the, uh, with the workpiece that I'm working on. And since I'm not chopping the ends of the mortise until the very end, I don't have to worry so much about whether the ends of the mortise are square until the last, the last cuts. So for the last cuts, when I'm finally putting the chisel into the knife line and chopping the ends of the mortise, then I will reposition myself to be, you know, at the front of the workbench where I can see if my last end cuts are then plumb with the end of the mortise. So it does have a lot to do with body positioning. You can certainly make mortises with a regular bench chisel. Uh, plenty of people do it. The mortise chisel will make your life a little bit easier, um, but it's not a cure-all. It's not going to do it automatically. It's still going to require you to position yourself so that you can see plumb um, and practice with those chisels. So I'm not going to say that um, buying a mortise chisel is going to you know, miraculously solve your problem, but um, it may help a little bit. So I wouldn't discount the mortise chisel. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a luxury. You know, it's certainly not necessary, but um, I would call it, you know, if you're going to chop a lot of mortises by hand, uh, I would ch I, I would consider it more than a luxury. I would consider it, you know, a a first purchase after your bench chisels kind of thing because it, it is going to be quite helpful um, if you're going to be doing a lot of mortising by hand. In terms of fixing a mortise that hasn't been chopped, uh, plumb or square, um, there's a few things you can do if you notice that the mortise is not square before you make the tenon. The easiest thing to do is to pair the sides of the mortise square, get everything squared up. That might mean the mortise is going to be a little bit wider, but you can then cut your tenon to fit, so it's not really that big of a deal. The problem is that when you're building something like a door frame or something like that where um, you're not sure if your mortise is, is square or not because you usually don't find out until you go to do the assembly. And then, you know, you do a dry fit and your door is, your door frame is twisted or your table and aprons are, are twisted somewhat. They're not going together right. And you find out that your mortise wasn't cut square. So what do you do then? What I will typically do is uh, alternately pair the mortise wall and the tenon face, the opposite tenon face, to make everything line up properly. Once I get everything to line up properly, if I find the fits a little bit too loose, then I'll take some veneer or you know plain shavings or whatever and glue them to the tenon, um, and then I can refit the tenon by, you know, paring or planing or using a rasp or whatever on the, the cheek of the tenon until everything is just right. Um, but yeah, the fix usually it's not simple. It it usually requires paring the uh, the side walls of the mortise until you get everything nice and and plumb and square, and then gluing some veneer or some shavings to the tenon because you usually don't find out that it's out of plumb until you cut your tenon and by then uh, it's too late 
to adjust the tenon. But you're right. If you can fix the problem in the first place and not, not chop your mortise out of square in the first place, that's obviously where you want to start. Um, but even now, I mean, I've been chopping mortises and mortises by hand for over 15 years and, you know, it still happens. Um, so knowing how to fix it is certainly a, a skill worth having. You know, I've always said that chopping mortises, making mortises by hand is actually harder than making dovetails by hand. And this is one of the reasons, um, because you can't really see inside that mortise when you're making it. So if things aren't perfectly plumb and perfectly square, um, you know, you end up with a door frame that's twisted or, or not laying flat or sitting right in its opening. So, um, yeah, don't be discouraged. Uh, the mortise and tenon is certainly, in my opinion, more difficult to make by hand than the dovetail is. Um, so just keep working at it. Look at, you know, your body position. See if you can find those videos. I'll try and post a, a link to one in the show notes um, and uh, and kind of watch how I do it. But again, you know, it's just one way to do it. It's certainly not the only way. Um, you know, just experiment and see what works for you. Um, you could even use a guide block. I think Paul Sellers shows a method for chopping a mortise using a, a guide block clamped to the uh, the stock itself that helps to guide the chisel and keep it plumb and square. So, uh, you know, certainly no shame in doing that either if it helps you. So uh, give that a look as well. So that's all for the mailbox for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, and I certainly hope that you do, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic is four word, yeah, easy for me to say, four woodworking myths. Of course, there are plenty more than four myths, but this time around, I'm going to talk about four of my favorite myths that seem to continue to be perpetuated, even though they've been disproven many times. So the first myth is that you need to finish both sides of a piece to prevent warping. Uh, I, I have heard this one so many times and I can continue to hear it. Um, and it's, it's, it's a complete falsehood, uh, but it still is just one of those things that is constantly repeated over and over again. Um, even though it's been disproven plenty of times. Um, if you have any doubt about this, just look for articles written by Bob Flexner. Um, Bob is a, a finishing expert. He's got decades and decades of experience in the, in the, uh, in the field, and uh, he knows his stuff, to, to say the least. Um, and he's got plenty of explanations of why, um, why finishing both sides is completely unnecessary and why it doesn't prevent warping. Um, but the short of it is that it doesn't really matter if you finish both sides or not. The real reason to finish both sides is if you uh, are going to see both sides or feel both sides and you just want both sides to look nice. But in terms of preventing warping, um, finishing both sides is not going to have any effect on that. In fact, finishing at all is really not going to have much of an effect on it. Because the fact is that all finishes are permeable to some extent, and moisture is still going to find its way through that finish, no matter if you finish one side or both sides. And the, if, if the board wants to warp, it's going to warp whether it's finished on both sides or not. The finish is only going to slow 
the permeation of moisture, but it's not going to completely prevent it. So it doesn't really matter much whether you finish both sides or not. And the other fact is that finishing both sides doesn't help all that much because the majority of the moisture that enters and leaves a piece of wood enters and leaves through the end grain. Very little of it actually enters the wood cells and fibers through the face or the edge grain. So if you finish both faces of the board, you're not really doing very much to prevent or slow that moisture progression because the moisture is coming in primarily through the end grain, not through the face or the edge grain. Think of a bundle of straws. If you put that bundle of straws into a pitcher of water, all right, the, the water is going to enter those straws through the holes in the ends. Well, that's essentially what you have um, you know, with the fibers of wood. Um, the same thing is happening. Most of that moisture is coming through the end grain. So finishing both sides does not prevent uh, warping at all. Um, Bob had a really great example of this um, using uh, decks, deck boards as an example, where for the most part you finish the top side of the deck, but the, the bottom side of the deck is rarely, rarely um, finished. And uh, the way that wood warps and the way that wood um, absorbs moisture and, and the way that a board will cup um, has to do with you know the the differential expansion between the different rings i'm not even going to try to explain it look for bob fleckner's flexner's articles on the subject and read them uh, because they are a wealth of information um, but the fact of the matter is that you do not need to finish both sides uh, of anything uh, if you want to leave the inside of something unfinished the bottom of a tabletop the inside of a box go ahead and do it um, it's really not going to have any detrimental effect on your project Myth number two, in order to use a plane on a shooting board, the sides of that plane need to be dead square to the sole of the plane. This is another one of those myths that has been perpetuated forever. Um, and it seems to make sense if you're new to the craft. Well, of course, the sides of the plane need to be square, dead square to the sole of the plane, because you're going to ride the plane on its side. And if you want to create uh, a square cut, well, then the side needs to be plane parallel, that needs to be square to the sole. The fact of the matter is that the plane has very little to do with successfully using a shooting board. Um, the plane is just a carrier for the blade. What's actually doing the cutting is the blade. So when you put a plane on a shooting board, what needs to be square to the piece that you're shooting is the blade not the sole of the plane. So if you can adjust the blade of in your plane to be square to uh, to the piece that you're you're planing on the shooting board, then regardless of whether or not your plane's sides are dead square to the sole, um, you're going to be able to plane and shoot that end grain or edge grain square. So um, don't worry so much about whether the sides of the plane are perfectly square to the sole of the plane. Um, if you have any normal plane and you're not planing with something that's shaped like a triangle, um, you'll be just fine. Make a couple of test passes um, on that shooting board, and if the edges, if, if the, the, the end grain or edge grain or whatever it is that you're shooting is not square, to the face, 
make a, an adjustment, a lateral adjustment to the iron and try again until it is square and then use that setting, uh, you know, to do the rest of your shooting and you'll be just fine. It really does not matter at all whether or not the sides of the plane are square to the sole of the plane. Myth number three, um, if you're going to plane the end grain of a board, you need to use a low angle block plane or some other plane with a low cutting angle. Uh, this one, it's, it seems like it's kind of going away the more people get into hand tools and learn about them. Um, because obviously, you know, the fact of the matter is it's completely untrue. You don't need a low angle block plane or a plane with a low cutting angle to plane end grain. You can plane end grain with absolutely any plane you want. Um, I've planed end grain with hand planes that have had blades bedded at up to 55 degrees, which you know, is considered a high angle, almost, you know, borderline couple, another 10 degrees and you're bordering on scraping. Um, so it's certainly not necessary. What is necessary is that the blade is sharp and that's about it. You can use uh, a bevel up plane, a bevel down plane, a block plane, a smooth plane, a high angle plane, a low angle plane. It really does not matter as long as the blade is sharp and, uh, and set properly. You should not have any problem planing and grain. Finally, our last myth for today, that you cannot use a scraper on softwoods. Um, this one, you know, if, if you've tried to scrape softwoods, you might think that this one has some merit and has some truth to it. Um, because it can be a challenge to scrape softwoods. But in most cases, the problem isn't the wood. The problem is the scraper. Um, and more specifically the way that the scraper is sharpened. The fact of the matter is most people don't sharpen scrapers to the same, um, to the same level that they would sharpen a, a hand plane blade or a chisel. Um, because most hardwoods just don't need the scraper to be honed that precisely, to be polished that precisely and, and honed that precisely in order to scrape, in order to take shaving with that scraper. Um, hardwoods are a little bit more forgiving when it comes to scraping. Softwoods can certainly be scraped. I've done it more times than I can count, um, but it requires a scraper that is much better cared for, shall we say. Um, you need to make sure that your faces are polished so that you can get a sharper edge um, on that burr. When you turn that burr, you want that burr to be much, you know, extremely, extremely sharp. Um, almost like you would, again, for a smoothing plane blade or a, or a paring chisel. Um, and if you spend the time to polish the edge of the scraper and polish the face of the scraper and turn a very fine burr um, with not too, too aggressive of a hook, you can certainly plane uh, or, sorry, scrape softwoods just fine. As I said, I, I've done it more times than I can count. Um, the real question is whether you really want to scrape softwoods because in most cases it's it can be effective, you know, if you've got some reversing grain around a knot or something like that. Um, but in most cases, you simply just don't need to do it. You can, uh, you know, take care of your softwoods with, uh, with a hand plane. Um, and then, you know, you're, you're not usually dealing with uh, with too much tear out that, you know, some light sanding can't... Uh, can't handle if your hand plane doesn't take care of it. But if you do, 
encounter a board that requires um, some uh, some additional work and, and has some grain that's kind of squirrely in it, um, you know, you you certainly can scrape softwoods if you take the time uh, and effort to really prepare your scraper well. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123 or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt031. And in the show notes, you can find any links that I refer to in today's show. And you can also find links to follow me on all my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. And you'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com slash support. So thank you again for listening. And until next time, stay sharp, everybody.